You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. is Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loved his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Mm. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Karen. Let's pray together. Father, um, you've given us a really good gift by giving us marriage. And I'll just confess here that I know myself, I'm sometimes really lousy at it, and want to acknowledge that we need your help. And would you help us do that? Illuminate to us your plans through your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you're invited to be seated. Well, during our second year of marriage... There was a movie released starring Tom Hanks called Castaway. Okay? In the movie Castaway, Tom Hanks plays a FedEx uh, employee who is flying a big FedEx plane with all these packages across the ocean and his plane crashes. And he's the only survivor. I think it was one other person who died. But anyway, he was the only survivor and he winds up on this remote deserted island where he lives for four, over four years of his life with no one, like learning to survive on his own. And uh, in the course of time, he, he's like, well, I've got to survive. So he's like trying to make fire. And on a day when he's trying to make fire, he winds up cutting his hand. And it's so frustrated that he just begins throwing stuff. You know, like he's taking all these packages that have washed up on shore and he'd been collecting and using, just throwing all this stuff. And one of the things he picks up and throws is a white volleyball. It is made by the company Wilson. Okay, and he throws this volleyball, and when he does, his bloody handprint winds up like on the the volleyball. Well, he finds it later, and he's looking at it, and he winds up like making a character, like giving it like eyes and things like that, like making a character out of the blood handprint on this Wilson volleyball. And because it says Wilson on it, he decides to name the volleyball Wilson. And thank God for Wilson because it provides the context of the only dialogue in the entire movie, okay? It would drive you insane to watch it without it. So, so he becomes best friends with Wilson, a volleyball, okay? And talks to Wilson and cares for Wilson throughout his four-year time on this island. Well, eventually he decides it's time to escape. I'm going to get off this island. He builds himself a raft. He takes Wilson, who by this time is really tattered. He has like hair coming out the top. It's really a weird-looking thing. But anyway, he affixes Wilson to the top of a pole on the front of his raft, and I believe he ties him on there with like VHS tape, okay? And he's got Wilson tied onto the top, and he he launches out into the ocean. And if you know, like, like in Moana, you know, like trying to get through that first First part of the ocean is the hardest because those waves are breaking over the top, but he makes it out into open water. Well, through the course of time out there on open water, uh, something happens and Wilson like falls off of his stand that he's been affixed to. Tom Hanks is laid out there on the, on the raft and when he kind of comes to, he looks around and he can't find Wilson and he is panicked. He's like, Wilson, 
Wilson! He's looking all over the place, and out in the distance, he can see Wilson bobbing in the water. And I, he's, he's panicked. And so he jumps out in the water. Now he is completely wiped out. He has no strength or energy. He's trying to swim out to Wilson. And he, he, as he's getting closer to Wilson, he realizes that the raft is drifting in the opposite way of the volleyball. And so he realizes that if I go and get Wilson, I'm not going to be able to get back to my raft. So he goes back to the raft. He grabs a rope and he starts to pull the raft, trying to, to pull the, the raft and still get his best friend in the world, Wilson. And as he's getting out there, he's struggling and as he's about to drown, he even lets go of the rope because he's so bad, wants his friend. And, and in one of the saddest moments in cinematic history, I found myself crying, as you could all believe, I'm sure, crying at this man who is saying farewell to his volleyball. He's like, I'm sorry, Wilson! Wilson, I'm sorry! I'm like, he is drowning and like, he is pouring it out. He should have won. He was nominated. Should have won Best Actor. It was really good. Anyway, he winds up swimming back to the raft, barely making it back, and Wilson bobs away. And why is it that I was so, like, drawn to this man saying farewell to a volleyball? Well, it's because deep down, we were all designed for deep intimate companionship. You were made for that. And when we see someone else longing for it, so it just strikes a chord in us. Now, why were we designed that way? Why is it like that? Well, it's because we were made in the image of a relational God. You were made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27, we see that God uh, said, let us make man in our own image. So in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. You men, you women are made in the image of God, which means that you were made as a relational being. We see uh, that played out, God's relationship to himself in John chapter 1. We see that God's not been alone for all eternity past. In John chapter 1, we say that in the beginning was the Word. We're talking about Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. We see later on in John in chapter 17 that Jesus here, before he goes to the cross, he's praying to his Father, and he's talking to his Father about that intimate connection that they had before the world began. So here's what we can get out of that. God did not create humanity. He didn't create human beings out of a need that he was trying to fill in himself. God did not create you because he was lonely and he needed a friend. God was not lonely. God was completely satisfied in himself. And in fact, the creation of humanity is simply an overflow of the perfections and goodness of God. Okay, so like God's character is being displayed and mirrored in you who were created in his image. So we then come out of the womb longing for relationship. That's how you were made, and you come out of the womb longing for it. And marriage may very well be God's greatest gift to mankind outside of the gift of himself. It is the foundation through which discipleship and human flourishing happens. Marriage was God's solution to the first incompleteness of humanity. Before there was ever even sin, there was something in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, that God said was not good. He said it was not good for man to be alone. And so marriage was his design from the beginning. It was his design before there was sin. It was his design before there was a creation. So what is God's pattern? What is God's design for marriage? Well, Paul lays it out here in verse 31 of the text we just read today. Paul quotes in verse 31, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, when he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So that's God's pattern. That's God's design for marriage, that a man would leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two would become one flesh. Well, for this reason, for what reason? Well, He's quoting again Genesis chapter 2, and earlier in Genesis chapter 2, right before, um, or right, excuse me, right after, God declared that it wasn't good for man to be alone. What happens is, like, God brings all the animals to Adam, okay? So like, hey, it's not good for man to be alone. Let's bring all the animals to him and let him name the animals. So God brings all the animals, and in a way, 
It's like God is allowing Adam to see that, hey, not only do I realize you need companionship, but all these other beasts and creatures are not going to do it for you. So Adam starts naming the animals. Giraffe, not like me. Gorilla, not like me. Uh, a hippopotamus, definitely not like me. You know what I'm saying? So like he starts naming all the animals. And after they're all named, it said, the Bible says that there was no suitable companion found for him. And it's not like God was like, uh, man, well, what are we going to do? Let's uh, come up with an idea. No, this was already God's plan. This was already God's design. But he's demonstrating to Adam, like, hey, look, Fido is not going to do it for you. Okay, so he causes a deep sleep to come over Adam. Adam goes to sleep, and when he wakes up, guess what? He's married. Okay, he goes to sleep, he wakes up, and he's and he writes a poem. He's so overwhelmed. I used to tell this joke. It's lame. Okay, this is a dad joke. But Adam went to sleep, woke up, and he's he, the reason she's called woman. He's like, whoa, man, you know. Uh, but that's not true at all. Uh, he says he, he writes a poem though. He says, "This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh." Like he is like, whoa, this is awesome. You are like me. You are compatible with me. I mean, not exactly like me. But you are for me, for sure. There was a huge difference, okay? So that was, by the way, really cool that, uh, it was, it was the first, the first marriage was an arranged marriage. Amen, fathers? Yes, amen, okay. <laughs> that's, that's the pattern, okay? Daughter, that's it. All right, so anyway, uh, but marriage serves really basically four purposes, okay? I just want to see those real quick that we see in God's pattern here. Number one, marriage we saw is for companionship. It is not good for man to be alone, Genesis 2.18. But not only that, but marriage is for children. Marriage is the uh, capsule in which God designed for children to be produced. He says in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. That means make babies, okay? So marriage is for making babies, but not just for making them, but it's also for the good of children. Did you know that children flourish best in the context of a father and mother united in marriage. That's not just like cliche, like Christian talk that bears itself out in research. Okay. You can see that that's just true. Children do better in that context. It is for their good. Thirdly, we see that marriage exists to make you holy. Now it does this in a couple of ways. One of the ways is it does this is it keeps you from immorality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, which is a very like sexualized uh, culture. And I'm trying to be careful because there's young children in here. So, but, uh, but like it's a highly like mm, culture. And God, uh, Paul is saying like, hey, I realize that the culture you live in, there's a lot going on here. So what you need to do, if you can't control yourself, you need to take yourself a wife. Okay. Or ladies, a husband. All right. So the reason for that is to keep you from immorality, but not just that. But it has this sanctifying work that it does in you. And I love the way Matt Chandler says this, so I'm going to read what he wrote. He says, nothing sanctifies you more quickly than marrying another human being. You have no real depth of understanding just how depraved, how selfish, and how self-exalting you are until you marry another human and you live in the house with them. Now, that is true, okay? I used to think I was a pretty good guy, you know what I'm saying? And then I got married. And I realized I had lots of flaws. I'm like, first I thought like, you're just being nitpicky. Then later on I realized like, oh, other people just don't have the courage to say what you're saying to me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it makes, but, but listen to this. This makes you holy. And check this out. Write this down. Marriage is not intended to make you happy. It's intended to make you holy. Now you may say like, well, does that mean that I have to have a lousy marriage or I'm supposed to be unhappy in my marriage? Of course not. In fact, the more holy you are, the more happy you're going to be. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and happiness will be added to you as well. And lastly, fourthly, okay, so it's, it's for companionship, for children, to make us holy. But there's another one too, I, the best way I saw to, to say it is for a loving affection, okay? I think you're all going to get the drift here. But in Genesis chapter 26, you see that Isaac is sporting with his wife. Okay, now, I don't think it means like, you know, pumping iron, walking, jogging, whatever. Uh, because when others see what they're doing, they're like, oh, uh, this must be his wife, okay? Uh, so, in other words, like God has made you for this deep, intimate type of relationship for enjoyment of one another. You see in the song of Solomon, it's an entire book of the Bible that's written about intimacy in marriage. In first Corinthians chapter seven, which we referenced just a while ago, Paul says like, Hey, there are these conjugal rights that each other has. He says, men, your body doesn't belong to yourself. It belongs to your wife. Okay. So give her what she deserves, what she uh, needs. Okay. Women, 
Your body doesn't belong to yourself. It belongs to your husband. Okay? So I don't need to go on and on about that because my son's going to be asking questions after the service. (laughs) But beyond that, there is a deeper mystery. Yeah, I've got a married son, but I've got a a nine-year-old over here too. (laughs) I know some of you are thinking like, hey, really? Yeah. No, he's married. (laughs) Awkward boy. (laughs) Golly. (laughs) Sorry, Aiden. All right. Allison, does Ace have a phone or something you can play with? Something else? All right. But beyond all that, there is actually, there's a deeper meaning that Paul refers to in verse 32. Okay. He calls the union of a man and his wife, he calls it, quote, a profound mystery. Now that word mystery deals with this hidden or veiled part of the Old Testament that when Christ comes, is unveiled, it's revealed, okay? So there's a truth about marriage that's been true from the beginning, but it's been hidden. And when Christ came, now the, the, uh, the truth, the fullness of that reality is unveiled. And he lays it out for us here in verse 32. He says that the marriage is and has been intended to be a picture of the union between Christ and his church. So there is the deeper and fuller and truer meaning of marriage is that it is to display the union between Jesus and his church. So marriage is sacred. Marriage is good. Marriage is to be desired. It is to be defended. Marriage is, by and large, for most people, God's design for you. And that is why, Satan says, marriage must be destroyed. There is an all-out war against marriage. First, it comes from Satan and from the evil forces that are bent on destroying everything God has established and called good. In Genesis chapter 3, you see that Adam and Eve fall to Satan's temptation. By the way, Adam here is being a lousy husband. It says that Adam was with her. An actual word used with her is like he is there with her. He's not like out somewhere else, you know, grilling and doing man stuff while she's over there picking, you know, uh, fruit off the trees when Satan the snake comes up and tempts her. He's there with her. And Satan attacks and he tempts and they fall. And then the war and the assault on that union begins. And we can't even get out of the first book of the Bible before the whole thing just falls apart. In chapter 4 of Genesis, you see we have polygamy. By chapter 9, there are these evil sexual thoughts. Chapter 16, you see adultery. Chapter 19, there is rampant homosexuality. In chapter 34, you have fornication, which is just sex outside of marriage and unequal yoking. In other words, like uh, marrying those outside of your faith. In chapter 38, there's incest and prostitution. Chapter 39, you see in the story of Joseph, there are these uh, attempted evil seductions. Um, of Joseph. So there is this war, this assault that's coming at us by Satan on the very foundation of human flourishing. But secondly, there's conflict from the inside because of our own sin. Now, would you amen me that marriage can be hard? Yes. Because you take two sinners and you smash them together, like in this kind of union, you are going to have conflict. Now, my wife would agree with me. You can look at her. Her face will tell you that the hardest year of our life was our first year of marriage. Amen. <laughs> I heard another amen. Yes, amen. Why? Well, it's because, because, again, like I have my way. She has her ways. We don't know how to live together. I'm a sinner. She's a sinner. And you put us together and like, hey, like uh, live together now. And it just didn't work out that way. You know what I mean? Like I had all these great ideas. And I remember telling people when we were dating, like, we've never fought. We've never had a fight. Like, well, let's get married. And we got real good at it <laughs> right out of the gate. So thank God by his grace, we survived uh, those first couple of years. They were difficult, but that's just because of the sin, honestly, in our own lives. And these marital problems, by the way, that we all experience can be the source of the deepest kind of pain. And why is that? Well, it's because it strikes at the most intimate level of life. Like in marriage, you have completely exposed yourself, literally and figuratively. I mean, like emotionally exposed yourself to another person. You've like taken your heart out and held it out in front of another person and said like, here, I want you to take care of this. 
and you put it in someone else's hands. And even when it's unintentional, those wounds cut deep. It really is hard and hurtful. And so because of the assault from the outside and because of the conflict within, we are today witnessing the death of marriage. In our country alone, which this is what I want to talk about, divorce is at 40%, I think is what it is, for first-time marriages, 55 or so percent of second marriages, 75% of third marriages will end in divorce in our country. By the way, if your parents divorced, you are four times more likely to experience divorce yourself. Not only that, but birth out of wedlock is on the rise. Uh, this year, over 40%, it's almost 45% of all births in the United States will be to unwed parents. That, by the way, that number's never been above 10% until 1965. And then cohabitation and fornication. So like cohabitation is like living together before we get married and like having sex before we get married. That's way up on the rise. Oh, about 75 to 80% of people who get married this year will have cohabitated before they got married. Uh, not only that, but we're experiencing a redefinition of marriage in general, like all together. So in, in 2015, there was a Supreme Court case that came down and said that all states in the United States had to recognize same-sex, not just same-sex unions, but same-sex marriages. They had to issue licenses to same-sex couples. And the argument that was given and the reason the Supreme Court of the United States uh, like ruled in this way was because it was, it was billed as a, um, uh, what would you call that? A, uh, uh, what, what, what? Civil right. Yes. Civil right. Thank you. It's a civil right that the same sex couples have the same rights, shouldn't be denied the same rights as heterosexual couples. But what was actually happening is everyone did have equal rights. If we could go back and reframe this. Okay. Everyone did have equal rights. All men in the United States could marry. They could marry a woman, okay? All women in the United States could marry. We all had equal rights. We could marry, that women could marry men. There were some rules. I mean, obviously you could marry your brother, some things like that, okay? But by and large, that was the thing and it was fair. It was for everybody. But what actually happened is we redefined what marriage is. If you remember, what was God's definition? Well, it was that a man would leave his father and mother, be united to his wife in one lifelong union. So we've redefined that not only in 2015 with that ruling, but also in 2020, just two years ago, up in Massachusetts, the first legalized, uh, recognized, uh, what do you call this, polyamory, polyamorous relationship, which is just this idea that, like, well, maybe you'd want three partners all together. Two of them could be men or two of them could be women or maybe four. As long as it's like mutually agreed upon, it's not the same as like an open marriage. This is like everyone's in like a union. Okay. So the first legalized one of those happened in Massachusetts, like I said, just two years ago. And it's what this is, is a complete redefinition of what marriage is. And not only that, but even in the church, like a lot of this stuff gets, uh, not just accepted, but kind of like we go along with the culture. Uh, one of the ways we do that is in this idea of like, I don't know a better way to say it, but like perpetual singleness. We're delaying in our culture marriage later and later and later in life. And one of the reasons we typically do that is because we're really busy, like, getting our degrees and like establishing our careers and like making a life for ourselves. But I just want to make a real quick case, if I may, for getting married earlier. Okay. If I may. And I did try to check myself on this. And I mentioned this uh, last service too, because I really want to be careful because I'm, I don't want to ever say something like, I just trying to bolster what I did in my life uh, and like try to make me, I guess, like feel better or look better in your eyes because I got married when I was 18 years old. So I'm not saying everyone should do that. Hear me right away. But I just want to say two quick things about it. One is that we were designed not to be alone. God said it's not good for man to be alone. And so uh, unless God has given you a special uh, gifting for singleness, and one way you'll know that you have that is you have no desire to be married. Okay, it's one way you would know. Okay, but and that is a gift. Okay, if that is yours, and praise be to God. Paul said he wishes everyone was like that, and they could devote themselves to the kingdom's, kingdom's work. Okay, go after it. But if you don't have that gift, um, it's not good that we should be alone. Secondly, I would say, uh, God's designed us where we come into our prime pretty early on in life. You know, like there is this drive to be with another and drive, like a sexual drive that comes early on in life. So like 13 to 15 years old, I'm not saying you should get married at 13. Please don't hear that. Don't read into what I'm saying. Uh, but like it happens then. And then like it goes on, you know, to like 30 or 40 or whatever years old. I mean, I, I mean, it diminishes after that. But anyway, so what happens is in our culture where you're supposed to get married at 27 or 30, that you're having to put the, if you're going to stay pure, you have to put the brakes on this like intense desire that God's given you. And you have to do that, what, for 15 years? 
That's not fair. So you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to fall into sin, okay? And you're just like, well, you know what? That's just too hard and that's not reasonable, okay? Or like it could be that like that, that just becomes not a big deal to you um, where, you know, like th- there really is not much of a drive left, okay? And sexual intimacy in your marriage is going to be very important, okay? So anyway, that's just my quick case for like, hey, don't put off marriage too long, okay? And, and to back that up, there was a great quote from Charles Spurgeon on this. This is back in the 1800s before, you know, it was this delayed. He says, it is wise to marry when we can marry wisely. So I think that's great, okay? Yes, don't be a fool. I, I wouldn't suggest you be 13 and like, yeah, I'm getting married. Um, your voice hadn't changed and you're yeah, trying to find a wife. But he says, it's wise to marry when we can marry wisely and then the sooner the better. Is what he says. So anyway, that's just Charles Spurgeon. Side note, it didn't come right out of the scriptures, but I think, you know, it's good for us to hear. So as followers of Jesus, by the way, you may be, I'm sweating, honestly, when I say stuff like that, because I think that's not our culture and people aren't going to like what I just said. So as followers of Jesus, I just want to remind us that we don't take our cues from the culture. We take our cues from the scriptures. And so I don't ever want you to take anything that I'm saying and be like, well, you know, I, uh, I should do this or that. Take your cues from the word of God and just, you know, see where you see where you land on that. All right. So we're about to look at how we as followers of Jesus can experience flourishing in a life-giving marriage. But real quick first, I do recognize that there are teenagers and others, adults, you know, who are not currently married. And so I want to say real quick word to you, just three brief things, maybe some uh, bits of advice. Number one, don't wait on the perfect person. There's this um, illusion in our culture that there's a perfect person hanging out there for you, and it's your soulmate's out there. And if you uh, if you don't go find them, and you don't find the right person, you're going to have to like settle for second best. Nothing could be farther from the truth. There's only been men, ladies. There's only been one Messiah. Okay, you're going to have to settle for something less. Okay, so don't don't look for the Messiah to be. I mean, like. There is a sense in which the Messiah is your husband. That's true. Uh, but like, you know, that's, he's not going to be it. Number two, what you really want to do is find a godly person who is filled with the spirit. Okay. Who is walking with the spirit of God, uh, like in step with the spirit. This is what you want for your life. Find that kind of person. Okay. Now, does it mean that looks don't matter and all that? Like, mm, I mean, like. Not that much, but yes, they matter. I mean, like, that's what got my attention. I'm going to be honest. It got my attention at first, you know? But, like, after the look, I'm like, you know what? She is a godly lady. Because I was looking at my wife here who, like, she was active in mission. She was active in her church. She was, uh, like, just by the way she conducted her life, it was evident that she was following Jesus. And that was attractive to me. Which leads me to the third thing. In the waiting time, like when, you know, you haven't found that person or a person like that yet, which by the way, they're, they're everywhere. Uh, if you look around, the church is a great place to find a spouse. Okay. So in fact, there are other places that are not so good to find spouses. You can find them there. I was reminded by someone after the first service, this is how they did it. But bars usually aren't the best place to find them, but hey, God works anywhere and everywhere, but don't use that as an excuse and be like, well, I'm just, you know, don't do that. Look in a church, okay? Look for people who have the same kind of ideals and and, uh, passions and convictions that you have. Okay, thirdly, you, during the meantime, be the kind of person that a godly man or woman would be attracted to. Because a godly man, ladies, a godly man is not attracted to someone who's trying to get you by their body. Okay, so like if you want to attract a godly man, don't try to do it in a sensual way. Guys, lady, a godly woman is looking for a man who is who's going to humbly submit himself to Christ. So she's not looking for someone who's really stuck on himself. Okay, so be the kind of person that a godly man or woman would be attractive to. So you could pursue holiness. You could protect your purity. And this boy, once you get into adulthood and stuff, this is harder and harder and harder. But listen, um, the, don't settle for living, like just living the way the world does and doing relationships the way the world does. Don't settle for that. There's something better for you. 
And so if you're a person who's like, well, I've already, uh, you know, been active with somebody or with uh, 50 people or whatever, you know, uh, that, that's honestly, I think the average in our country is like eight partners or so before we get married. So like, if that's you and you're like, well, I've already done all that. Well, listen, here's the thing. God's inviting you into like more life, repent and just be like, God, you know what? This is the way I've been pursuing it my way. I've been pursuing it the world's way. And I want to stop doing that. I want to trust you and I'm going to pursue purity. So do that with your life, protect your purity. And thirdly, I'd just say serve faithfully. So like in this season of life, in the season of singleness, serve God, serve the church. And I'll tell you what, this is extremely attractive to a godly man or a godly woman, a person who serves Jesus faithfully. So that's a word to you. That was totally free. Now, how do we in marriage as followers of Jesus experience a flourishing and life-giving marriage? Well, We'll look at our text today, and there's three things that we're going to see. By the way, this needs a whole series, okay? So what I'm about to do is like skipping rocks on the water, okay? I remember going to Washington, D.C. a couple years ago on a little trip. We took a bunch of students down there, and one of the things we wanted to do was see the White House, okay? Well, that wasn't on our schedule. So what we did was we like ran over to the White House. By the way, two blocks in Washington is like four miles. It was a really long way. But anyway, we got over to the White House. We took like a selfie. We're sweating and we're like, all right, that was it. And we ran and left. Okay. And that might be what this feels like that we're about to do right here. Okay. So we're going to run and take a selfie in front of this text. And I want to invite you that after it's over, to go back, let's dive a little deeper in it. There, I mean, Jared's preached several sermons on these things, and and then um, okay, anyway. So, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. our church has done it. That's all I'm trying to say. I'm so sorry. Sorry, Adam. That was very dishonoring. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Oh, there's nothing to forgive. Amen. Oh, thank you. Okay. Go, go back and dive a little deeper in this. But first of all, we see in our text today, verse 21, this idea of mutual submission. Verse 21, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You want a healthy marriage? It needs to be a, a marriage of submission. Submission, by the way, is this uh, identity that all Christians, men, women, elders, political leaders, uh, children, this, this is uh, employees, we all Christians know that this is part of our identity. We're, we have the identity of submission because that's who Christ is. That's how Christ has demonstrated to do life. Because he who was in the very nature God didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so if Jesus is the one we're following, we mutually submit to one another. And to submit is simply to say, I humble myself to serve you. That's the posture we take. You want a healthy marriage? It's got to be about your spouse and not about you. Their interest, you take uh, other people's interests is more important than your own. Okay. Then he fleshes that out a little bit. Wives, number two. Wives, he says, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Literally what he says there, if you were a couple of the words, maybe in italics in the NIV, literally it says wives to your husbands as unto the Lord. Now he's borrowing from the verse before where he's talking about submission here. But this, by the way, I know it makes me nervous again because I do want people to like me and I fight through that all the time. Okay. I want to be faithful to God. Okay. I want to be faithful to his word. And I know that like this idea of, oh, women submitting, oh my goodness, you know, like, eh, um, I know where that lands in our culture today. So let me talk real quick about what submission is not. Okay. So number one, this does not mean, ladies, that you're called to put up with abusive relationships. You are not. I wish this did not need saying, but when Paul says to submit to the husband as to the Lord, that means as a way of serving God. It is a way that you serve God in the way that you serve your husband. But it does not mean that you serve him in the place of God. This means that if your husband tells you to do something or leads you to do something that would make you disobey the Lord or his leadership, then no, <laughs> okay? Or if he ever puts you or your family in harm's way, then you need to get out. Like You're not called to do that. That's not in, implied here. It's not expected of you at all. In fact, if you're in that kind of relationship, I would encur- my encouragement to you would be to get out and to find uh, some help and healing. Okay. Go get some counseling. Our church is here. That's what pastors do. 
So we're here to help you uh, in those kind of situations. But secondly, it also does not mean that the dominance of the man, that the man's in charge, the man's the, the dominant is to domineer his wife. In fact, you'll see in the following verses, we're going to look at here in just a second, that the man is to lay down his life for his wife. Thirdly, it does not mean that we ladies, that you submit to all men in all areas. Paul's command doesn't mean that women everywhere are to submit to every man. Like as if women can't lead, for example, in the workplace. Paul is only talking about specifically the marriage relationship. Fourthly, men, this, this idea of submission of the, the wife submitting to her husband does not mean that we use this verse as like a tool to wield over our wives. Notice that the verse is addressed specifically to wives. Men, this is your wife's verse. It's not yours. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that, that this means that you shouldn't quote this verse at your wife. It is hers to obey. It's not yours to demand. If she's not doing it, all you can do is to be the kind of leader that would be a joy to submit to. You play, husbands, you play your role and trust God with hers. Okay. Now, it doesn't mean those things. So what does this submission mean? Well, wives, this means that submission to your husband is a way of allowing him the space to steer the family. Spiritual leadership, which has been given to husbands, means that the husband bears the burden of responsibility. And the counterpart of that is the sort of submission that encourages and equips the husband for that leadership. Uh, Dr. Tony Evans put it this way. Spiritual leadership, ladies, is God telling the woman to duck so he can punch the man in the face. Okay? So this is a gift to you in that the man is bearing the weight of responsibility for the family. Spiritual headship, by the way, is also, men, not a license for you to do whatever you want to do. It is empowerment instead to do what you ought to do. Okay, so it's not a license for husbands to do whatever they want. It's empowerment to do what they ought. But wives, this does not mean that you only follow your husband when you agree with him. Or you feel like he's making the right decision. Because that's not submission, that's agreement. And you can say, well, my husband's not a spiritual leader. And that may very well be true. You may even say, my husband's not even a believer. And that may be true. And you may wonder, like, well, what does that mean for me? But this verse does not say submit when he is a sufficiently spiritual leader. Uh, or, or he's that, everything you need him to be in your own eyes. If your husband is not a spiritual leader, or if he's not even a believer, then check this out, wives. Your submission to him in this way can help call him up into this kind of leadership. In fact, Peter lays it out this way. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. Even to those who aren't believers, because in doing so, your actions, your life could very well be the vehicle God uses to transform his heart. There's a great book, by the way, written by Lee and Leslie Strobel. Lee Strobel by the, wrote the book, The Case for Christ. Uh, and what happened was they were both unbelievers when they got married. Okay. And she came to faith in Jesus and became a disciple of Jesus at some point during their marriage. And, um, he agreed to stay, you know, he didn't leave her because of it, but he was not on board. Okay. And, uh, they wound up right. He eventually came to faith because he's, I don't want to get into all of it, but he eventually came to faith because of the example that she set in the home. Okay. Because of her love for him, her devotion to Christ, the way they were raising their children. It was so like countercultural to him that it, that, you, that God used it to change his own heart. And they wrote a book together called Surviving a Spiritual Mismatch in Marriage. And if that happens to be where you are, I would encourage you to check that book out, Surviving a Spiritual Mismatch in Marriage. Now, as a wife, this submission creates a vacuum in your home that is an invitation for him to lead. And when your husband does step up, ladies, listen, this is going to serve him like nobody's business. Okay. He's going to love you so well. If you'll do this, when he does step up and he does fill that void, you've got to use your words and encourage him. Like recognize that like, babe, Hey, what you just did. That's what I love about you. That was leadership. And you watch him be like, that's right. It was, you know, and like, I, the, if you desire that kind of stuff from your man, listen, 
Let him know when he does a good job. Let him know when he is fulfilling his God-given role. And I promise you, you'll see more of it because he longs to hear it. And then when the two of you start to conduct your marriage in this way, you're going to find a deeper joy, the joy you've been longing for. And this is what, dude, this is what superstar marriages are made of. Now, husbands, a third word here is given to us. Verse 25, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, that's the simple command. Husbands, that's what you're supposed to do. Love your wives. The word for love here, there's many loves in the Greek. You've probably heard this. Uh, many words for love in the Greek that you, uh, uh, you've heard us preach about and things like that. But the word used here is, is agape, which is this type of love that is a love of the will. This is a decision. This is the type of love that God has for you. It's a type of love that's covenantal. It's also a type of love that, like... Does it despite the other person? Not, not in spite of, but despite whatever the other person does. Doesn't matter. I'm going to choose to love you. It's the way God loves you. He loved you when you were unlovable. He loved you when you didn't love him back. He loves you still when you wander away. He loves you still when, I think as James puts it, you uh, commit adultery with the world. He still loves you. He still pursues you. He still cleanses you. And husbands, that is how you are to love your wives. You don't wait for your wife to submit to love her. You don't wait for her to love you back. You don't wait for her to be faithful. You don't wait for her to do what you think she ought to do. You love her. And there's a couple ways we see in the first marriage that, uh, that Christ, excuse me, that love will show up in the first marriage between Adam and Eve, that love kind of shows up in Christ-like leadership, okay, in Adam. Let's look at those real quick. Number one, I'm going to give you four things. Number one, the husband, or Adam in this story, provides for his wife. Okay, the husband provides for his wife. You're going to see in the Genesis story that God give, gave Adam a job before he gave him a wife. Real quick, single ladies, okay, teenage ladies, whatever. Do you catch that? God gave Adam a job before he gave him a wife. Just a real quick bit of advice. Don't be marrying a man who can't yet provide for himself. Okay. That man can provide for himself and then like provide for you. Then, hey, go for it. That sounds great. Okay. Number two, the husband is to lead the way spiritually. Lead the way spiritually. Adam was already following God. He was already friends with God before Eve was created. So that means that husbands, you lead in the application of scripture in your home. And that could sound really terrifying because you may be like, ah, I don't know how to do that. Or I'm not as spiritual as she is. I don't know as much Bible as she does. I'm not as good at praying as she is. And that may all be true. That may all be true. But listen, the burden of the spiritual health of your family is on your shoulders, husbands. And so you lead in the application of that. And you can do that in a lot of ways. But hey, just start with this. Husbands say like, hey, honey, um, listen, why don't tonight we sit down and we'll have family devotion? And... Tell your wife, like, hey, you can pick the scripture we're going to read or whatever. And then just like lead the family. It doesn't mean you have to do a Bible study or you have to teach them everything you know about the scriptures or, you know, like embarrass yourself because you don't know a lot or whatever. But just like, hey, family, we're going to get together. This is my idea. So if you think it's dumb, hey, you can put it on me or whatever. But we're going to sit down and we're going to get into the Bible together. We're going to pray together before we go to bed tonight. Okay, husbands, put that on yourself. Not only that, but you're the primary mouthpiece, husbands. You're the primary mouthpiece for God's feelings about her. That means that you are the one that God's put in your wife's life to tell her how much he loves her, to tell her her position in Christ, just who she is in Christ, to, to remind of her, her of her identity, to let her know how God feels about her and how you feel about her. What if your wife's identity was built solely on the compliments and encouragements that you give her. Now, I wrote that down, and, and I felt like, bruh. You know, I, I, often, I feel for my wife, you know? And so it, it was a time of repentance this week as I'm, like, preparing, like, if that's all she had to go on, like, ah, you know, I, I, listen, it's my desire. I know she knows that it's my desire to be that, but just know that I fail in that in so many ways and so often. Thirdly, the husband is to lead in romance. Another area 
of growth for me. Uh, but we're to lead in romance. In Genesis chapter 2, like I, I mentioned at the beginning of the message today, that Adam writes a poem, you know, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Like, ooh, should be called woman. Um, that's a pretty good poem. <laughs> anyway, the, the idea, man, is that we, we take the initiative in romance. We take the initiative for date night, Okay. Uh, my wife, when I, when I go seasons without doing a good job of this, my wife will eventually say it to me like, Robert, you have not like planned a date night or or called someone to watch our kids or whatever in in a long time, you know, and that's to my shame. Like that's my role to make sure that, that the romance stays kindled in our marriage. Not only that, but when things start getting off track, husbands, it's our job to recognize it and to, and to get in there and do something about it. When we realize that the train's getting off track, husbands, it's our job to say, hey, whoa, let's put the brakes on. We need some help. If that means like we need to get some counseling or like we need uh, to talk to a pastor or whatever, that's our role. Know when we need help. And then lastly, the fourth thing, the husband is to lead in sacrifice. Excuse me. In Genesis chapter two, you see that uh, man is to leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Well, in the same way, Christ left his heavenly home and pursued his bride, which is us, his church. And the way that Christ did that through self-sacrifice, he laid down his very life for you and for me, men, husbands. That is how we are to lead our wives. We are servant leaders, and I'm to serve my wife as Christ loved and served the church. And boy, the church desperately needs husbands to lead in this way. Statistics will bear this out. Barna did some research. We're about to close, but I want to, I want to mention this here. Barna did some research a few years back that among families in America who's, uh, who were unchurched, okay? So they weren't not involved in a church yet. When a church reaches a child, like through VBS, with the gospel, there's a three and a half percent chance that the church will reach the rest of that family with the gospel. When the church reaches the mother and the mother comes to faith in Jesus, there's a 17% chance that you'll reach the rest of that family with the gospel. However, when the church reaches the father of the home with the gospel of Jesus and he comes to faith in Christ, there is a 93% chance that the rest of that family comes to faith. And what this means is that husbands, your family is going to be most impacted when you are the one leading in family devotions. It's going to be most impacted when you are the one setting the spiritual priorities, when you're the one taking the lead in discipline. And this doesn't mean that husbands, you're supposed to get your way all the time. Actually, no. In fact, 95% of decisions in my family and my marriage, I would say winds up deferring to her because most of the decisions that are made day to day are decisions of preference. Okay. These aren't just, these aren't like our spiritual life is hanging in the balance here. Or are we going to tamales or brick oven? You know what I'm saying? Which is our two choices. Okay. So like even last night we went on a date and I, we were driving to Jonesboro and I'm like, so what do you want to do tonight? She's like, uh, go eat. And I'm like, I know what that means, but I'm like, well, where do you want to go? Because I'm kind of hitting like, well, maybe try something else. You know, it's just like, well, tamales, of course. And I'm like, of course, you know, <laughs> so here we go. But listen to me, this isn't like, uh, you know, you just get your way all the time. I'm telling you, I, I, Allison, look, I don't, I'm going to confess this in front of the whole church. I don't think tamales is the best restaurant in the whole world. <laughs> but I think, I, I think you're the best woman in the whole world. And I want to serve you. You know what I mean? I, I am gladly, willingly lay down my preferences for you because I love you. Okay. And then that's, that's how we're to serve and lead our wives. Now, there are some times we're like, uh, there was a story. I got a little bit more time on the service, you know, so I can say a few more things. All right. So there's a story of, y'all know of Tim Keller. He's a pastor up in Manhattan. And uh, I mean, like a big influencer in the, the culture in America. I mean, he's like, was considered one of the most influential pastors in our, in our country. Now, uh, when Tim felt the call of God to go and plant a church in Manhattan, they didn't live in New York. Okay. He and his wife, Kathy, I think is her name. Uh, they didn't live in New York at the time. And so they start talking about like, Hey, I think God's calling us to New York. Well, she did not really feel God was doing that. She, she's like, I don't want to do that. And so they had some discussions, some back and forth. And they wrote a book, by the way, called the meaning of marriage, where they talk about this a little bit. And eventually he says to her, he's like, well, if you don't want to go, we, we just won't go. Okay. That's, that's okay. We're not going to do it. And she says, no, 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 no. You're not going to pin this on me. 
you're the man of the house, okay? You're the husband here, and God has put this in your lap, and so you're not going to go back and blame me for you not doing what you feel God's called you to do, okay? And if that is what you're confident God's called you to do, you need to make a decision, and you need to lead. And now, there they are. They're in New York, okay? Because she was like, no, I'm not going to defer, in, or excuse me, um, yeah, I'm not going to be blamed, I guess, you know, for that decision. All right. So marriage, it's God's gift, but not only that, at its core, it is first and foremost a gospel reenactment. Marriage is meant to display to your family and to the world what, what relationship to God through Jesus Christ is like. And when it's done right and it's done faithfully and we're walking in the spirit and we're doing this thing together, men, we're spiritually leading our, our wives and wives. We are joyfully and willfully submitting to our husbands like we do to Christ. The world sees that and they may not like the words that are used, but they love the marriages that they see. And they long for that kind of relationship. So let's display to the world what it is that God longs to do in the, in every human heart. Now in the first service, we had a beautiful picture of this reality of, of like God's union with us. We saw a baptism in the first service. It was amazing. Go back and watch the, the service. But anyway, in that we saw a beautiful display of the gospel. In marriage, we see a beautiful display of the gospel. And then what we're about to do now, we're going to enjoy communion together. And it is also a display of the gospel of Jesus. And this is just a reminder when we take communion every week that like, I'm submitting myself to Jesus, and I'm saying, Jesus, I need you in order to do this thing right. Like, I'm going to flub this up on my own. Ladies, that's true. Men, this is true. I need Jesus. So we take communion, and we take the bread, which reminds us that Jesus' body was broken for us. We take the cup because it reminds us that his blood was spilled for us for the forgiveness of our sins. Because, boy, we bring a lot of sin to the table in this marriage. And boy, we need the cleansing power of Jesus. We need the empowering and infilling of his Holy Spirit. So let's have the band come on up and then let's, why don't we stand together? I'm going to pray over us as we're about to come to this table together. By the way, uh, we'll be on the sides today. So why don't we file out to the sides as we come up and take communion together? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the space to process your word together. Um, thank you for the design of marriage. Thank you that you were so thoughtful and intentional in the way that you made us, that you made us compatible, neither one of us superior or inferior to the other. You made us co-equal to one another, but you also made us in a way that we play distinct roles within that relationship. And that just reminds us that's what you're like. Father, you play a distinct role. Jesus, you play a distinct role. Holy Spirit, a distinct role. And we want to mirror your character to each other and to the world. And in doing that, we believe that we're going to experience the life, the joy, the fulfillment that you've, you've made us to experience, that we're longing to experience. So as we come to this table, we're just reminded, Jesus, we need you. And if, if, we're, if we've been following the pattern of the world or we um, have been living in sin, we repent of that. And we trust you to help guide us in the way that we should go. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.